Section nine of Three Soldiers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M. B. Three Soldiers by John Dos Passos. Section nine. Part four. Rust. One. There were tiny green frogs in one of the putty-colored puddles by the roadside. John Andrews fell out of the slowly advancing column a moment to look at them. The frogs' triangular heads stuck out of the water in the middle of the puddle. He leaned over, his hands on his knees, easing the weight of the equipment on his back. That way he could see their tiny jeweled eyes, topaz-colored. His eyes felt as if tears were coming to them with tenderness towards the minute, lithe bodies of the frogs. Something was telling him that he must run forward and fall into line again, that he must shamble on through the mud, but he remained staring at the puddle watching the frogs. Then he noticed his reflection in the puddle. He looked at it curiously. He could barely see the outlines of a stained, grimacing mask and the silhouette of a gun-barrel slanting behind it. So this was what they had made of him. He fixed his eyes again on the frogs that swam with elastic, leisurely strokes of the putty-colored water. Absently, as if he had no connection with all that went on about him, he heard the twang of bursting shrapnel down the road. He had straightened himself wearily and taken a step forward when he found himself sinking into the puddle. A feeling of relief came over him. His legs sunk in the puddle. He lay without moving against the muddy bank. The frogs had gone, but from somewhere a little stream of red was creeping out slowly into the putty-colored water. He watched the irregular files of men in olive drab shambling by. Their footsteps drummed in his ears. He felt triumphantly separated from them, as if he were in a window somewhere watching soldiers pass, or in a box of a theatre watching some dreary, monotonous play. He drew farther and farther away from them, until they had become very small, like toy soldiers forgotten among the dust in a garret. The light was so dim he couldn't see. He could only hear their feet tramping interminably through the mud. John Andrews was on a ladder that shook horribly. A gritty sponge in his hand, he was washing the windows of a barracks. He began in the left corner and soaped the small oblong panes one after the other. His arms were like lead, and he felt that he would fall from the shaking ladder, but each time he turned to look towards the ground before climbing down he saw the top of the general's cap and the general's chin protruding from under the visor, and a voice snarled, Attention! terrifying him so that the ladder shook more than ever. And he went on smearing soap over the oblong panes with the gritty sponge through interminable hours, though every joint in his body was racked by the shaking of the ladder. Bright light flared from inside the windows which he soaped pane after pane methodically. The windows were mirrors. In each pane he saw his thin face in shadow, with the shadow of a gun-barrel slanting beside it. The jolting stopped suddenly. He sank into a deep pit of blackness. 
a shrill broken voice was singing in his ear there's a girl in the heart of maryland with a heart that belongs to me john andrews opened his eyes it was pitch black except for a series of bright yellow oblongs that seemed to go up into the sky where he could see the stars his mind became suddenly acutely conscious he began taking account of himself in a hurried frightened way he craned his neck a little in the darkness he could make out the form of a man stretched out flat beside him who kept moving his head strangely from side to side singing at the top of his lungs in a shrill broken voice at that moment andrews noticed that the smell of carbolic was overpoweringly strong and that it dominated all the familiar smells of blood and sweaty clothes he wriggled his shoulders so that he could feel the two poles of the stretcher then he fixed his eyes again on the three bright yellow oblongs one above the other that rose into the darkness of course they were windows he was near a house he moved his arms a little they felt like lead but unhurt then he realized that his legs were on fire he tried to move them everything went black again in a sudden agony of pain the voice was still shrieking in his ears there's a girl in the heart of maryland with a heart that belongs to me but another voice could be heard softer talking endlessly in tender clear tones and he said they were going to take me way down south where there was a little house on the beach also warm and quiet the song of the man beside him rose to a tuneless shriek like a phonograph running down and maryland was a fairyland when she said that mine she'd be another voice broke in suddenly in short spurts of whining groans that forced themselves into fragments of drawn-out intricate swearing and all the while the soft voice went on andrews strained his ears to hear it it soothed his pain as if some cool fragrant oil were being poured over his body and there'll be a garden full of flowers roses and hollyhocks way down there in the south and it'll be so warm and quiet and the sun'll shine all day and the sky'll be so blue andrews felt his lips repeating the words like lips following a prayer and it'll be so warm and quiet without any noise at all and the garden'll be full of roses and but the other voices kept breaking in drowning out the soft voice with groans and strings of whining oaths and he said i could sit on the porch and the sun'll be so warm and quiet and the garden'll smell so good and the beach'll be all white and the sea andrews felt his head suddenly rise in the air and then his feet he swung out of the darkness into a brilliant white corridor his legs throbbed with flaming agony the face of a man with a cigarette in his mouth peered close to his a hand fumbled at his throat where the tag was and someone read andrews one four three two two eight six but he was listening to the voice out in the dark behind him that shrieked in rasping tones of delirium there's a girl in the heart of maryland with a heart that belongs to me then he discovered that he was groaning 
his mind became entirely taken up in the curious rhythm of his groans. The only parts of his body that existed were his legs and something in his throat that groaned and groaned. It was absorbing. White figures hovered about him. He saw the hairy forearms of a man in shirt-sleeves. Lights glared and went out. Strange smells entered at his nose and circulated through his whole body. But nothing could distract his attention from the sing-song of his groans. Rain fell in his face. He moved his head from side to side, suddenly feeling conscious of himself. His mouth was dry like leather. He put out his tongue to try to catch raindrops on it. He was swung roughly about in the stretcher. He lifted his head cautiously, feeling a great throb of delight that he could still lift his head. "'Keep your head down, can't you?' snarled a voice beside him. He had seen the back of a man in a gleaming wet slicker at the end of the stretcher. "'Be careful, my leg, can't you?' he found himself whining over and over again. Then suddenly there was a lurch that wrapped his head against the cross-piece of the stretcher, and he found himself looking up at a wooden ceiling from which the white paint had peeled in places. He smelt gasoline and could hear the throb of an engine. He began to think back. How long was it since he had looked at the little frogs in the puddle? A vivid picture came to his mind of the puddle with its putty-colored water and the little triangular heads of the frogs, but it seemed as long ago as a memory of childhood. All of his life before was not so long as the time that had gone by since the car had started. And he was jolting and swinging about in the stretcher, clutching hard with his hands at the poles of the stretcher. The pain in his legs grew worse. The rest of his body seemed to shrivel under it. From below him came a rasping voice that cried out at every lurch of the ambulance. He fought against the desire to groan, but at last he gave in and lay lost in the monotonous sing-song of his groans. The rain was in his face again for a moment. Then his body was tilted. A row of houses and russet trees and chimney-pots against a leaden sky swung slowly up into sight and were instantly replaced by a ceiling and the coffered vault of a staircase. Andrews was still groaning softly, but his eyes fastened with sudden interest on the sculptured rosettes of the coffre and the coats of arms that made the centre of each ceiling. Then he found himself staring in the face of the man who was carrying the lower end of the stretcher. It was a white face with pimples round the mouth and good-natured watery blue eyes. Andrews looked at the eyes and tried to smile, but the man carrying the stretcher was not looking at him. Then, after more endless hours of tossing about on the stretcher, lost in a groaning agony of pain, hands laid hold of him roughly and pulled his clothes off and lifted him on a cot where he lay gasping, breathing in the cool smell of disinfectant that hung about the bedclothes. He heard voices over his head. "'Isn't bad at all, this leg wound. I thought you said we'd have to amputate.' "'Well, what's the matter with him, then?' maybe shell-shock. A cold sweat of terror took hold of Andrews. He lay perfectly still with his eyes closed. Spasm after spasm of revolt went through him. No, they hadn't broken him yet. He still had hold of his nerves, he kept saying to himself. 
Still, he felt that his hands clasped across his belly were trembling. The pain in his legs disappeared in the fright in which he lay, trying desperately to concentrate his mind on something outside himself. He tried to think of a tune to hum to himself, but he only heard again, shrieking in his ears, the voice which, it seemed to him months and years ago, had sung, There's a girl in the heart of Maryland, with a heart that belongs to me. The voice shrieking the blurred tune, and the pain in his legs mingled themselves strangely, until they seemed one, and the pain seemed merely a throbbing of the maddening tune. He opened his eyes, darkness fading into a faint yellow glow. Hastily he took stock of himself, moved his head and his arms. He felt cool and very weak and quiet. He must have slept a long time. He passed his rough, dirty hand over his face. The skin felt soft and cool. He pressed his cheek on the pillow and felt himself smiling contentedly. He did not know why. The Queen of Sheba carried a parasol with little vermilion bells all around it that gave out a cool tinkle as she walked towards him. She wore her hair in a high headdress, thickly powdered with blue iris powder, and on her long train that a monkey held up at the end were embroidered in gaudy colors the signs of the zodiac. She was not the Queen of Sheba, she was a nurse whose face he could not see in the obscurity, and, sticking an arm behind his head in a deft, professional manner, she gave him something to drink from a glass without looking at him. He said, Thank you, in his natural voice, which surprised him in the silence. But she went off without replying, and he saw that it was a trayful of glasses that had tinkled as she had come towards him. Dark as it was, he noticed the self-conscious tilt of the nurse's body as she walked silently to the next cot, holding the tray of glasses in front of her. He twisted his head round on the pillow to watch how gingerly she put her arm under the next man's head to give him a drink. A virgin, he said to himself, very much a virgin, and he found himself giggling softly, notwithstanding the twinges of pain from his legs. He felt suddenly as if his spirit had awakened from a long torpor. The spell of dejection that had deadened him for months had slipped off. He was free. The thought came to him gleefully that as long as he stayed in that cot in the hospital, no one would shout orders at him. No one would tell him to clean his rifle. There would be no one to salute. He would not have to worry about making himself pleasant to the sergeant. He would lie there all day long, thinking his own thoughts. Perhaps he was badly enough wounded to be discharged from the army. The thought set his heart beating like mad. That meant that he, who had given himself up for lost, who had let himself be trampled down unresistingly into the mud of slavery, who had looked for no escape from the treadmill but death, would live. He, John Andrews, would live and it seemed inconceivable that he had ever given himself up, that he had ever let the grinding discipline have its way with him. He saw himself vividly once more, as he had seen himself before his life had suddenly blotted itself out, before he had become a slave among slaves. 
he remembered the garden where in his boyhood he had sat dreaming through the droning summer afternoons under the crape myrtle bushes while the cornfields beyond rustled and shimmered in the heat he remembered the day he had stood naked in the middle of a base room while the recruiting sergeant prodded him and measured him he wondered suddenly what the date was could it be that it was only a year ago yet in that year all the other years of his life had been blotted out but now he would begin living again he would give up this cowardly cringing before external things he would be recklessly himself the pain in his legs was gradually localizing itself into the wounds for a while he struggled against it to go on thinking but its constant throb kept impinging on his mind until although he wanted desperately to comb through his pale memories to remember if ever so faintly all that had been vivid and lusty in his life to build himself a new foundation of resistance against the world from which he could start afresh to live he became again the querulous piece of hurt flesh the slave broken on the treadmill he began to groan cold steel-gray light filtered into the ward drowning the yellow glow which first turned ruddy and then disappeared Andrews began to make out the row of cots opposite him and the dark beams of the ceiling above his head. This house must be very old, he said to himself, and the thought vaguely excited him. Funny that the Queen of Sheba had come to his head. It was ages since he'd thought of all that. From the girl at the crossroads singing under her street lamp to the patrician pulling roses to pieces from the height of her litter, all the aspects half-guessed, all the imaginings of your desire, that was the Queen of Sheba. He whispered the words aloud, La reine de Saba, la reine de Saba, and with a tremor of anticipation, of the sort he used to feel when he was a small boy the night before Christmas, with a sense of new things in store for him, he pillowed his head on his arm and went quietly to sleep. "'Ain't it just like them frogs to make a place like this into a hospital?' said the orderly, standing with his feet wide apart and his hands on his hips, facing a row of cots and talking to anyone who felt well enough to listen. "'Honest, I don't see why you fellows don't all cash in your checks in this hole. There warn't even electric light till we put it in. What do you think of that? That shows how much the goddamn frogs care.' The orderly was a short man with a sallow, lined face and large yellow teeth. When he smiled, the horizontal lines in his forehead and the lines that ran from the sides of his nose to the ends of his mouth deepened so that his face looked as if it were made up to play a comic part in the movies. "'It's kind of artistic, though, ain't it?' said Applebaum, whose cot was next Andrews's. The skinny man with large frightened eyes and an inordinately red face that looked as if the skin had been peeled off. Look at the work there is on that ceiling. Must have cost some dough when it was new. Wouldn't be bad as a dance hall with a little fixin' up, but a hospital? Hell! Andrews lay, comfortable in his cot, looking into the ward out of another world. He felt no connection with the talk about him, with the men who lay silent or tossed about groaning in the rows of narrow cots that filled the Renaissance hall. 
in the yellow glow of the electric lights looking beyond the orderly's twisted face and narrow head he could see very faintly where the beams of the ceiling sprung from the wall a row of half-obliterated shields supported by figures carved out of the grey stone of the wall handed satyrs with horns and goat's beards and deep-set eyes little squat figures of warriors and townsmen in square hats with swords between their bent knees naked limbs twined in scrolls of spiked acanthus leaves all seen very faintly so that when the electric lights swung back and forth in the wind made by the orderly's hurried passing they all seemed to wink and wriggle in shadowy mockery of the rows of prostrate bodies in the room beneath them yet they were familiar friendly to andrews he kept feeling a half-formulated desire to be up there too crowded under a beam grimacing through heavy wreaths of pomegranates and acanthus leaves the incarnation of old rich lusts of clear fires that had sunk to dust ages since he felt at home in that spacious hall built for wide gestures and stately steps in which all the little routine of the army seemed unreal and the wounded men discarded automatons broken toys laid away in rows andrews was snatched out of his thoughts applebaum was speaking to him he turned his head how do you like it being wounded buddy fine fine i should think it was better than doing squads right all day where did you get yours ain't got only one arm now i don't give a damn i've driven my last fare that's all how do you mean i used to drive a taxi that's a pretty good job isn't it you bet big money in it if you're in right so you used to be a taxi driver did you broke in the orderly that's a fine job when i was in the providence hospital half the fractures was caused by taxis we had a little girl of six in the children's ward had her feet cut clean off at the ankles by a taxi pretty yellow hair she had too gangrene only lasted a day well i'm going off i guess you guys wish you was going to be where i'm going to be tonight that's one thing you guys are lucky in you don't have to worry about profo the orderly wrinkled his face up and winked elaborately say will you do something for me asked andrews sure if it ain't no trouble will you buy me a book ain't you got enough with all the books at the y no this is a special book said andrews smiling a french book a french book is it well i'll see what i can do what's it called by flaubert look if you've got a piece of paper and a pencil i'll write it down andrews scrawled the title on the back of an order slip there what the hell who's antoine gee whiz i bet that's hot stuff i wish i could read french we'll have you breaking loose out of here and going down to number four rue villiers if you read that kind of book has it got pictures asked applebaum one fellow did break out of here a month ago couldn't stand it any longer i guess well his wound opened and he had a hemorrhage and now he's planted out in the back lot but i'm going good night the orderly bustled to the end of the ward and disappeared the lights went out except for the bulb over the nurse's desk at the end 
beside the ornate doorway with its wreathed pinnacles carved out of the grey stone which could be seen above the white canvas screen that hid the door. "'What's that book about, buddy?' asked Applebaum, twisting his head at the end of his lean neck so as to look Andrews full in the face. "'Oh, it's about a man who wants everything so badly that he decides there's nothing worth wanting.' "'I guess you's had a college education,' said Applebaum sarcastically. Andrews laughed. "'Well, I was going to tell yous about when I used to drive a taxi. "'I was making big money when I enlisted. "'Was you drafted?' "'Yes.' "'Well, so was I. "'I don't think nothing of them guys that are so stuck up because they enlisted. "'You?' "'Not a hell of a lot.' "'Don't you?' came a voice from the other side of Andrews, a thin voice that stuttered. Well, 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 all I can say is it would have spoiled my business if I hadn't enlisted. No, sir, nobody can say I didn't enlist. Well, that's your lookout, said Applebaum. You're goddamn right, it was. Well, ain't your business spoiled anyway? No, sir. I can pick it right up where I left off. I've got an established reputation. What at? I'm an undertaker by profession. My dad was before me. Gee, you were right at home, said Andrews. You have any right to say that, young feller, said the undertaker angrily. I'm a humane man. I would never be at home in this dirty butchery. The nurse was walking by their cots. "'How can you say such dreadful things?' she said. "'But lights are out. You boys have got to keep quiet. "'And you,' she plucked at the undertaker's bedclothes, "'just remember what the Huns did in Belgium. "'Poor Miss Cavill. A nurse just like I am.' Andrews closed his eyes. The ward was quiet except for the rasping sound of the snores and heavy breathing of the shattered men all about him. "'And I thought she was the Queen of Sheba.' he said to himself, making a grimace in the dark. Then he began to think of the music he had intended to write about the Queen of Sheba, before he had stripped his life off in the bare room where they had measured him and made a soldier of him. Standing in the dark in the desert of his despair, he would hear the sound of a caravan in the distance, tinkle of bridles, rasping of horns, braying of donkeys, and the throaty voices of men singing the songs of desolate roads. He would look up, and before him he would see, astride their foaming wild asses, the three green horsemen, motionless, pointing at him with their long forefingers. Then the music would burst in a sudden hot whirlwind about him, full of flutes and kettle-drums and braying horns and whining bagpipes, and torches would flare red and yellow, making a tent of light about him on the edges of which would crowd the sumpter mules and the brown mule-drivers, and the gaudily caparisoned camels, and the elephants glistening with jewelled harness. Naked slaves would bend their gleaming backs before him as they laid out a carpet at his feet. And, through the flare of torchlight, the Queen of Sheba would advance towards him, covered with emeralds and dull gold ornaments, with a monkey hopping behind, holding up the end of her long train. She would put her hand with its slim, fantastic nails on his shoulder, and looking into her eyes he would suddenly feel within reach all the fiery imaginings of his desire. 
Oh, if only he could be free to work. All the months he had wasted in his life seemed to be marching like a procession of ghosts before his eyes. And he lay in his cot, staring with wide open eyes at the ceiling, hoping desperately that his wounds would be long in healing. Applebaum sat on the edge of his cot, dressed in a clean new uniform, of which the left sleeve hung empty, still showing the creases in which it had been folded. "'So you really are going,' said Andrews, rolling his head over on his pillow to look at him. "'You bet your pants I am, Andy. And so could you, perfectly well, if you'd talk it up to him a little.' "'Oh, I wish to God I could. Not that I want to go home now, but if I could get out of uniform—' I don't blame you a bit, kid. Well, next time we'll know better. Local board chairman's going to be my job. Andrews laughed. If I wasn't a sucker... You weren't the only wee-wee one, came the undertaker's stuttering voice from behind Andrews. Hell, I thought you enlisted, undertaker. Well, I did, by God, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. What did you think it was going to be, a picnic? Hell, I don't care about that or getting gassed and smashed up or anything, but I thought we was going to put things right by coming over here. Look here, I had a lively business in the undertaking way like my father had had before me. We did all the swellest work in Tillotsville. Where? interrupted Applebaum, laughing. Tillotsville, don't you know any geography? Go ahead, tell us about Tillotsville, said Andrews soothingly. Why, when Senator Wallace did it, did deceased there who do you think had charge of embalming the body and taking it to the station and seeing everything was done fitting we did and i was going to be married to a dandy girl and i knowed i had enough pull to get fixed up somehow or to get a commission even but there i went like a sucker and enlisted in the infantry too but hell everybody was saying that we were going to fight to make the world safe for democracy and that if a fellow didn't go no one would trade with him any more he started coughing suddenly and seemed unable to stop. At last he said weakly, in a thin little voice between coughs, Well, here I am. There ain't nothing to do about it. Democracy? That's democracy, ain't it? We eat stinking goulash and that there fat Y woman goes out with colonels eating chocolate souffle. Poific democracy. But I'll tell you what, it don't do to be the goat. But there's so damn many more goats than anything else, said Andrews. There's a sucker born every minute, as Barnum said. You learn that driving a taxicab if you don't learn nothing else. No, sir, I'm going into politics. I've got good connections up 125th Street way. You see, I've got an aunt, Mrs. Sally Schultz, owns a hotel up on 133rd Street. Heard of Jim Ryan, ain't you? Well, he's a good friend of hers, see? being as they're both Catholics. But I'm going out this afternoon see what the town's like. And old Ford says the skirts are just peaches and cream. He just s -s says that to torment a fellow, stuttered the undertaker. I wish I were going with you, said Andrews. You'll get well plenty soon enough, Andy, and get yourself marked Class A and get given a gun and over the top, boys, to see if the Fritzies won't make a better shot next time. <laughs> Talk about suckers. You're the most poific sucker I ever met. What did you ever want to tell the loot your legs didn't hurt bad for? They'll have you out of here before you know it. 
Well, I'm going out to see what the mamzelles look like. Applebaum, the uniform hanging in folds about his skinny body, swaggered to the door, followed by the envious glances of the whole ward. Gee, guess he thinks he's going to get to be president, said the undertaker bitterly. He probably will, said Andrews. He settled himself in his bed again, sinking back into the dull contemplations of the teasing, smarting pain where the torn ligaments of his thighs were slowly knitting themselves together. He tried desperately to forget the pain. There was so much he wanted to think out. If he could only lie perfectly quiet and piece together the frayed ends of thoughts that kept flickering to the surface of his mind. He counted up the days he had been in the hospital. Fifteen! Could it be that long? And he had not thought of anything yet. Soon, as Applebaum said, they'd be putting him in Class A and sending him back to the treadmill, and he would not have reconquered his courage, his dominion over himself. What a coward he had been, anyway, to submit. The man beside him kept coughing. Andrews stared for a moment at the silhouette of the yellow face on the pillow with its pointed nose and small greedy eyes. He thought of the swell undertaking establishment, of the black gloves and long faces and soft, tactful voices. That man and his father before him lived by pretending things they didn't feel, by swathing reality with all manner of crepe and trumpery. For those people, no one ever died, they passed away, they deceased. Still, there had to be undertakers. There was no more stain about that than about any other trade. And it was so as not to spoil his trade that the undertaker had enlisted, and to make the world safe for democracy, too. The phrase came to Andrews's mind and made an avalanche of popular tunes, of visions of patriotic numbers on the vaudeville stage. He remembered the great flags waving triumphantly over Fifth Avenue, and the crowds dutifully cheering. But those were valid reasons for the undertaker. But for him, John Andrews, were they valid reasons? No. He had no trade, he had not been driven into the army by the force of public opinion, he had not been carried away by any wave of blind confidence in the phrases of bought propagandists. He had not had the strength to live. The thought came to him of all those who, down the long tragedy of history, had given themselves smilingly for the integrity of their thoughts. He had not had the courage to move a muscle for his freedom, but he had been fairly cheerful about risking his life as a soldier in a cause he believed useless. What right had a man to exist who was too cowardly to stand up for what he thought and felt, for his whole make-up, for everything that made him an individual apart from his fellows, and not a slave to stand cap in hand waiting for someone of stronger will to tell him to act. Like a sudden nausea, disgust surged up in him. His mind ceased formulating phrases and thoughts. He gave himself over to disgust as a man who has drunk a great deal, holding on tight to the reins of his will, suddenly gives himself over pell-mell to drunkenness. He lay very still, with his eyes closed, listening to the stir of the ward, the voices of the men talking, 
and the fits of coughing that shook the man next him. The smarting pain throbbed monotonously. He felt hungry and wondered vaguely if it were supper-time. How little they gave you to eat in the hospital. He called over to the man in the opposite cot. Hey, Stocky, what time is it? It's after mess time now. Got a good appetite for the steak and onions and French fried potatoes? Shut up. A rattling of tin dishes at the other end of the ward made Andrews wriggle up further on his pillow. Verses from the Shropshire lad jingled mockingly through his head. The world, it was the old world yet. I was I, my things were wet, and nothing now remained to do but begin the game anew. After he had eaten, he picked up the Tentation de Saint-Antoine that lay on the cot beside his immovable legs, and buried himself in it, reading the gorgeously modulated sentences voraciously, as if the book were a drug in which he could drink deep forgetfulness of himself. He put the book down and closed his eyes. His mind was full of intangible floating glow, like the ocean on a warm night, when every wave breaks into pale flame, and mysterious milky lights keep rising to the surface out of the dark waters, and gleaming and vanishing. He became absorbed in the strange, fluid harmonies that permeated his whole body, as a grey sky at nightfall suddenly becomes filled with endlessly changing patterns of light and colour and shadow. When he tried to seize hold of his thoughts, to give them definite musical expression in his mind, he found himself suddenly empty, the way a sandy inlet on the beach that has been full of shoals of silver fishes becomes suddenly empty when a shadow crosses the water, and the man who is watching sees wanly his own reflection, instead of the flickering of thousands of tiny silver bodies. John Andrews awoke to feel a cold hand on his head. "'Feeling all right?' said a voice in his ear. He found himself looking in a puffy, middle-aged face, with a lean nose and grey eyes, with dark rings under them. Andrews felt the eyes looking him over inquisitively. He saw the red triangle on the man's cocky sleeve. Yes, he said. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk to you a little while, buddy. Not a bit. Have you got a chair? said Andrews, smiling. I don't suppose it was just right of me to wake you up, but you see it was this way. You were the next in line, and I was afraid I'd forget you if I skipped you. I understand, said Andrews, with a sudden determination to take the initiative away from the Y man. How long have you been in France? Do you like the war? he asked hurriedly. The Y man smiled sadly. You seem pretty spry, he said. I guess you're in a hurry to get back at the front and get some more Huns. He smiled again with an air of indulgence. Andrews did not answer. No, Sonny, I don't like it here, the Y man said after a pause. I wish I was home, but it's great to feel you're doing your duty. It must be, said Andrews. Have you heard about the great air raids our boys have pulled off? They've bombarded Frankfurt. Now if they could only wipe Berlin off the map. Say, do you hate them awful hard? said Andrews in a low voice, 
because if you do, I can tell you something will tickle you most to death. Lean over. The Y-man leant over curiously. Some German prisoners come to this hospital at six every night to get the garbage. Now, all you need to do if you really hate him so bad is borrow a revolver from one of your officer friends and just shoot up the convoy. Say, where were you raised, boy? The Y-man sat up suddenly with a look of alarm on his face. Don't you know that prisoners are sacred? Do you know what our colonel told us before going into the Argonne offensive? The more prisoners we took, the less grub there'd be. And do you know what happened to the prisoners that were taken? Why do you hate the Huns? Because they are barbarians, enemies of civilization. You must have enough education to know that, said the Y-man, raising his voice angrily. What church do you belong to? None. But you must have been connected with some church, boy. You can't have been raised a heathen in America. Every Christian belongs or has belonged to some church or other from baptism. I make no pretensions to Christianity. Andrews closed his eyes and turned his head away. He could feel the Y-man hovering over him irresolutely. After a while he opened his eyes. The Y-man was leaning over the next bed. Through the window at the opposite side of the ward, he could see a bit of blue sky among white, scroll-like clouds with mauve shadows. He stared at it until the clouds, beginning to grow golden into evening, covered it. Furious, hopeless irritation consumed him. How these people enjoyed hating! At that rate, it was better to be at the front. Men were more humane when they were killing each other than when they were talking about it. So was civilization nothing but a vast edifice of sham, and the war, instead of its crumbling, was its fullest and most ultimate expression. Oh, but there must be something more in the world than greed and hatred and cruelty. Were they all shams, too, these gigantic phrases that floated like gaudy kites high above mankind? Kites, that was it, contraptions of tissue paper that held at the end of a string, ornaments not to be taken seriously. He thought of all the long procession of men who had been touched by the unutterable futility of the lives of men, who had tried by phrases to make things otherwise, who had taught unworldliness. Dim, enigmatic figures they were, Democritus, Socrates, Epicurus, Christ, so many of them, and so vague in the silvery mist of history that he hardly knew that they were not his own imagining. Lucretius, St. Francis, Voltaire, Rousseau, and how many others, known and unknown through the tragic centuries. They had wept, some of them, and some of them had laughed, and their phrases had risen glittering, soap-bubbles to dazzle men for a moment, and had shattered and he felt a crazy desire to join the forlorn ones, to throw himself into an inevitable defeat, to live his life as he saw it in spite of everything, to proclaim once more the falseness of the Gospels under the cover of which greed and fear filled with more and yet more pain, the already unbearable agony of human life. As soon as he got out of the hospital he would desert. The determination formed suddenly in his mind, making the excited blood surge gloriously through his body. There was nothing else to do. 
he would desert. He pictured himself hobbling away in the dark, on his lame legs, stripping his uniform off, losing himself in some out-of-the-way corner of France, or slipping by the sentries to Spain and freedom. He was ready to endure anything, to face any sort of death, for the sake of a few months of liberty in which to forget the degradation of this last year. This was his last run with the pack. An enormous exhilaration took hold of him. It seemed the first time in his life that he had ever determined to act. All the rest had been aimless drifting. The blood sang in his ears. He fixed his eyes on the half-obliterated figures that supported the shields under the beams in the wall opposite. They seemed to be wriggling out of their contorted positions and smiling encouragement to him. He imagined them, warriors out of old tales, on their way to slay dragons in enchanted woods, clever-fingered guildsmen and artisans, cupids and satyrs and fauns, jumping from their niches and carrying him off with them in a headlong rout to a sound of flutes, on a last forlorn assault on the citadels of pain. The lights went out, and an orderly came round with chocolate that poured with a pleasant soothing sound into the tin cups, with the greasiness of chocolate in his mouth and the warmth of it in his stomach. John Andrews went to sleep. There was a stir in the ward when he woke up. Reddish sunlight filtered in through the window opposite, and from outside came a confused noise, a sound of bells ringing and whistles blowing. Andrews looked past his feet towards Stocky's cot opposite. Stocky was sitting bolt upright in bed with his eyes round his quarters. Fellas, the war's over! Put him out! Cut that! Pull the chain! Tie that bull outside! came from every side of the ward. Fellas! shouted Stocky louder than ever. It's straight dope! The war's over! I just dreamt the Kaiser came up to me on 14th Street and bummed a nickel for a glass of beer. The war's over! Don't you hear the whistles? All right, let's go home. Shut up! Can't you let a fellow sleep? The ward quieted down again, but all eyes were wide open. Men lay strangely still in their cots, waiting, wondering. All I can say, shouted Stocky again, is that she was some war while she lasted. What did I tell you? As he spoke, the canvas screen in front of the door collapsed, and the major appeared with his cap askew over his red face and a brass bell in his hand, which he rang frantically as he advanced into the ward. Men, he shouted in the deep roar of one announcing baseball scores, the war ended at 4.03 a.m. this morning. The armistice is signed. To hell with the Kaiser! Then he rang the dinner bell madly and danced along the aisle between the rows of cots, holding the head nurse by one hand, who held a little yellow-headed lieutenant by the other, who, in turn, held another nurse, and so on. The line advanced jerkily into the ward. The front part was singing the Star-Spangled Banner, and the rear the Yanks are coming, and through it all the major rang his brass bell. The men who were well enough sat up in bed and yelled, the others rolled restlessly about, sickened by the din. They made the circuit of the ward and filed out, leaving confusion behind them. The dinner bell could be heard faintly in the other parts of the building. 
"'Well, what do you think of it, Undertaker?' said Andrews. "'Nothing.' "'Why?' The Undertaker turned his small black eyes on Andrews and looked him straight in the face. "'You know what's the matter with me, don't you, outside of this wound?' "'No.' "'Coughing like I am, I'd think you'd be more observant. I got TB, young feller. "'How do you know that?' They're going to move me out of here to a TB ward tomorrow. The hell they are. Andrews's words were lost in the paroxysm of coughing that seized the man next to him. Home, boys, home, it's home we want to be, those well enough were singing. Stocky conducting, standing on the end of his cot in his pink red cross pajamas, that were too short and showed a long expanse of skinny leg, fuzzy with red hairs. He banged together two bedpans to beat time. Home! I won't never go home, said the undertaker when the noise had subsided a little. Do you know what I wish? I wish the ward had gone on and on until every one of them bastards had been killed in it. Which bastards? The men who got us fellers over here. He began coughing again weakly. But they'll be safe if every other human being, began Andrews. He was interrupted by a thundering voice from the end of the ward. Attention! Home, boys, home. It's home we want to be, went on the song. Stocky glanced towards the end of the ward, and seeing it was the major, dropped the bedpans that smashed at the foot of his cot and got as far as possible under his blankets. Attention! thundered the major again. A sudden, uncomfortable silence fell upon the ward, broken only by the coughing of the man next to Andrews. "'If I hear any more noise from this ward, I'll chuck every one of you men out of this hospital. If you can't walk, you'll have to crawl. The war may be over, but you men are in the army, and don't you forget it.' The major glared up and down the lines of cots. He turned on his heel and went out of the door, glancing angrily as he went at the overturned screen. The ward was still. Outside, whistles blew and church bells rang madly, and now and then there was a sound of singing. End of section 9